Welcome, everybody, to a new episode of Fish Bites on the Fish Stripes Podcast. I am your host, Eli Sussman. Just one more episode with me at the helm before our regular Danny Martinez gets back on the show, and I have such a stacked episode for you guys. Coming off a four and two week for the Marlins at the major league level that included a series win over the Diamondbacks on throwback weekend, we're going to go through all the pomp and circumstance and great play that we saw over the weekend and all the festivities that were involved with that throwback to 1997. I have a special guest joining me later in the episode. It's Miami Marlins beat writer for the Sun Sentinel, Wells Dusenberry. Uh, I'm sure you've seen him on Twitter or read him in the paper or online. He is just celebrating one full year of Marlins coverage for the Sun Sentinel. He does a great job. We have a lot of respect for him, and we have a very long conversation. That's going to be the majority of this episode with me and Wells going through pretty much every single thing going on with the Marlins on the field, off the field, preseason expectations, long-term expectations, and some of his own personal observations from being around the team every single day. But we'll begin with the big breaking news from this weekend. On Saturday, right-handed reliever Sergio Romo officially traded from the Marlins to the Twins. I would describe it as a very creative trade design in that the Marlins, despite being the quote sellers in this situation, are losing three players and only getting one back in return. The full details are Sergio Romo with right-hander Chris Valamont, who was a fifth-round draft pick of the Marlins last year, and a player to be named later for first-base prospect Lewin Diaz. I guess we'll begin with Romo. Romo is the one all of you guys recognize. He's been the closer for the Marlins pretty much since day one, which I always found a little bit ironic. As soon as they signed him, remember he was coming off a 2018 season where his role was very flexible with Tampa Bay. He drew a lot of attention for being an opener, appearing at the start of the air games in the place of a traditional starter. And the Marlins uh, really hyped up his versatility and hinted that they might use it. And that's not how it worked out, because the rest of their relief core is relatively untested and inconsistent, so Romo had that fit at the end of games as their closer. He posted a 3.58 ERA, a 3.89 FIP, 1.22 WHIP, and that's in 37 and two-thirds innings. Uh, Just on those raw stats, he's pretty much a league average reliever, but you could argue he's much better than that, considering that the situations that he did well in were the most important situations. He was almost perfect in converting save opportunities, and he ranked top 10 among all qualified relievers in baseball so far this season in win probability added. So that just reflects the leverage of the situations that he comes into the game and what he does based on certain leverage. Early on in the season, it was kind of a running joke that he had these very big splits between safe situations and non-safe situations, and then non-safe situations, he was not really keeping things close at all, didn't really have that same adrenaline running through him. Overall, those really evened out, because as we got, especially over this last month, month and a half, he was nearly perfect, at least in terms of run prevention. He was right near the top of his game. That being said, this was inevitable. Pretty much from the second that they signed Romo, is a $2.5 million salary this year on a one-year deal for someone in his age 36 season to be a reliever on a team that knew they weren't going to contend. This is all about him just performing well in the first half of the season and having that strong impression with everybody behind the scenes, which by all accounts he did, and then you know thanking him for the service and flipping him for younger players. As I said, this is a creative deal in that he's not leaving on his own. Chris Valamont, 22-year-old right-hander, having a very strong season, first with Loway Clinton and then promoted to high A Jupiter. Overall, a 3.16 ERA, a 3.01 FIP, and that's in 105 and a third innings. He 
he had been the strikeout leader this season among all Marlins pitching prospects, 122 strikeouts in the minor league between those two affiliates, a 29.2 strikeout rate, which is elite for anybody, especially a starting pitcher, above average fastball velocity, low to mid-90s, even topping out around 97, a very sharp curveball, and a developing changeup. That's the pitch that still needs more depth and consistency to it. I know Valmont's a little bit better than most of these prospects. We had arranged an interview almost immediately after he was drafted in June 2018. He was a very down-to-earth guy, someone coming from a Division II school, Mercyhurst University, so he was very overlooked, didn't have much of an ego to him whatsoever, and he was just very determined and took a lot of pride in the fact that he was a starting pitcher. He broke all sorts of records at Mercyhurst, working deep into games and piling up the strikeouts, and he thought that would translate to the pros after somewhat of a rough debut in 2018. Uh, Like I said, he's been one of the best pitchers in the organization this year, just in terms of performance. He does it mostly with the two pitches, just the fastball and the curveball, and there's some skepticism about how exactly that's going to roll over as he goes to the high minors and then eventually the majors. But someone that is, with all the workload he's had this year, he's really stretched out. He's going to have an opportunity to be a starting pitcher moving forward. But the thing is, if you've been following the podcast closely, both here on Fish Bites and in Earning Their Stripes, you know how much minor league pitching depth the Marlins have. And Valamont was a guy that was um, somewhere around the 10th best pitching prospect in their organization, according to our Fish Stripes rankings, Baseball America, MLB Pipeline. We all kind of had him in the same range among their top 30 prospects overall. But just a handful of pitchers in the system that seemingly have higher upside, that have you know, three fully developed pitchers or that are a little closer to the major leagues than Valamont is. So he was getting buried in that depth chart. I do not like the word expendable because anyway you look at it, Valamont profiles as a guy that's going to pitch in the major leagues in some role, whether it's as a starter or as a reliever. And I don't think that's expendable. Bottom line is if it's someone has that talent to have an impact for you in the major leagues, no matter what kind of depth you have in that position, uh, this was a significant price that they gave up. For the purposes of this podcast, it doesn't seem that we're going to find out the identity of the player to be named later, at least for a number of weeks. I'm going to assume that it's someone more likely than not who won't even appear in the major leagues, that certainly it's going to be a lesser prospect than Valmont is. So anybody that's really panicked about that, that there's another very significant piece in the deal, I mean, you never know. There is a history of players to be named later going on to having surprisingly effective careers in the majors, but if you look at the averages of it and you just consider the fact that who's being moved in this kind of trade, in all likelihood, it's going to be a much lesser prospect than Valmont. Someone unlikely to make it to the majors, someone with maybe a 5% chance of being an average major leaguer. In all likelihood, it's not someone that they're going to miss. Regardless, it's three players in total that the Marlins are giving up, even though they're the selling team, and they're doing it for Lewin Diaz. Lewin Diaz addresses a pretty critical need in the organization as a first baseman, someone that could potentially be the long-term first baseman for the Miami Marlins. We're going to have an article coming up this week that goes really into depth about who he is, but just to give you the skinny on it, he has 19 home runs this year. That would rank second most in the entire Marlins organization behind only Isan Diaz, and people are already having a lot of fun with the possibility that these two guys are going to be the right side of the infield for years to come. That's getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, whereas Isan Diaz is on the verge of a major league call-up. With Lewin, it's more likely going to be in 2020 and late in the 2020 season. Uh, he's great over-the-fence power, as I mentioned with the home runs, all that to the pull side, but he does hit the ball hard to all fields. Someone that a shift won't necessarily deter him from getting base hits inside the ballpark, even in someone like Marlins Park. 
He is just elite. If you adjust his hitting stats for the leagues that he's been playing in, first in the Florida State League and then in the Southern League, he has a 156 weighted runs created plus. Keep in mind that 100 is average, 56% better than league average as a hitter, and that's in the 97th percentile of all minor league players with uh, 300 plus plate appearances. Among guys that are basically playing on a regular basis in the minors throughout this season, he's in the 97th percentile, the elite of the elite in terms of just the hitting ability. What also stuck out to me and what gives me a little bit of pause is how reliant he is on fly balls. The best type of contact you can make as a baseball player is a line drive. If you hit a hard line drive, it's going over the wall. Even if you hit one that's not quite as squared up, it has a good shot at finding the gap. Uh, He's someone that gets underneath the ball, very steep launch angle and arguably too steep. It's a 49% fly ball rate, which is if you use that same threshold of 300 plate appearances, 94th percentile among all minor league players in fly ball rate. And so this is why that concerns me a little bit. He'll be playing home games at Marlins Park that is pretty notorious for taking home runs away from people that would normally go out in other ballparks. The difference being it's just not carrying quite the same when it gets into the air. So that's an adjustment to look at moving forward. Uh, He is only 22 years old, turning 23 this offseason. An important factor is that he'll be eligible for the Rule 5 draft this coming offseason. He needs to be protected on the 40-man roster. And um, that's not really that big of an issue for the Marlins at this juncture in their situation. They have a handful of pitchers and utility players on the 40-man that do not have nearly the kind of upside that Diaz has. One thing that really does help his case and is very important in the National League is that he is a smooth defender at first base. Uh, Some of the judgments vary on how good that is. Uh, He is a relatively large first baseman, but he improved his athleticism a lot this year. Very good hands. The weakest tool, really, in his defensive skill set is his throwing arm, and that's the one that is of the least consequence when you're playing first base. But someone that has a potential to be a good all-around player, the one tool that he definitely will not have is, is running speed. He's going to be a below-average runner. But if he's a smooth defender, um, at least league-average power, uh, good enough plate discipline, um, and, and very good contact ability. That's like the interesting combination is the above-average contact ability and the above-average power hitting. That's a guy that could play every day in the major leagues. Potentially, the Marlins in at this point in the rebuild where you can only point to a few guys that seem to be a lock as everyday players moving forward. Not nearly enough, you know, to give you confidence that this team is close to being competitive. So this addresses a pretty critical need. None of the Marlins' top 30 prospects had been first baseman, but... Lewin Diaz is, and he jumps in, according to MLB Pipeline, he is now their number 12 prospect. He was number 10 in the Twins organization, according to Baseball America, before the trade, and so after the trade, it's going to be very similar. He is he's one of their better prospects, not quite a top 100 overall guy, but someone that has a very good chance to be an everyday player in the major leagues. Uh, as a floor, he, he'll be a guy that hits right-handed pitching very well as a left-handed batter, so he, he might not be an an everyday player. We need to prepare for that scenario. And that is the one thing that gives me a little bit of pause about the trade. Some people have been very positive about it. I do think it was an appropriate trade for where the Marlins are, and it was certainly appropriate for where the Twins are, leading the AL Central and trying to contend. We need to acknowledge that there is a possibility that Chris Valamont goes on to be the better major league player than Lewin Diaz if Valamont is able to stick as a starter, if Diaz has any setbacks in his conditioning or in his approach against 
left-handed pitching and isn't an everyday player, there is a scenario. It's an unlikely one, but it is a very real scenario that the Marlins actually gave away the better young player than the one that they received. Uh, Regardless, Diaz fits their needs so much better than Valamont does. And as I said already, I mean, Romo was completely expendable with the future of the organization. So while some people have been effusive in their praise for this, including some of the guys on our staff, I took a poll of the Fish Stripe staff and about half of those who weighed in gave the Marlins an A grade for what they did here. I'm going to go with a B. I kind of vacillated between a B and a B minus. I think it's fine. I think it's definitely appropriate uh, considering the players that were involved. I am amused by the creativity. I like the fact that it was a creative and not simply Romo on his own because that would not have fetched an impact prospect in return. That would be more of an organizational filler minor leaguer coming back. By formatting this the way that they did, they received someone in Diaz that very specifically fits the needs of the organization moving forward. Diaz has reported to Double A Jacksonville. From there, you could envision maybe going to the fall league after the season to really fine-tune his game. And then with the normal progression in 2020, he's on to AAA New Orleans, and from there, just knocking on the door to the big leagues. So this is a case where a veteran for prospect swap, we find out relatively soon, you know, what kind of player he's going to be with the Marlins organization. On behalf of everybody at Fish Stripes, welcome Lewin Diaz to the Marlins organization. Really excited to see what you do moving forward. In the meantime, while we watch Diaz develop from afar, the Marlins at the major league level are coming off a great week, winning two of three games in Chicago against the Chicago White Sox in an interleague matchup, then coming home for throwback weekend, hosting the Diamondbacks, and taking two of the first three in that series. When it comes to pitcher of the week, I just could not settle on one guy for the Marlins. Both Caleb Smith and Zach Gallen, incredible, virtually identical pitching lines in Chicago during that series against the White Sox. Caleb gets more style points. He carried a perfect game into the sixth inning in what was clearly his best start since returning from the injured list. Five Ks for Caleb Smith. Make it six on the outside corner. Called strike three, strikes out the side. And Caleb Smith has not allowed a base runner through five. Smith piled up nine strikeouts. All of his pitches, fastball, slider, changeup, were all on point. And what really stuck out to me was the efficiency that he had doing it all. That's the one gripe you could have about Caleb this season, even early in the year when he was one of the most dominant pitchers in the National League, is that it took a while for him to put batters away. He'd work himself into deep counts. He was very vulnerable to foul balls, and that was not the case in this one. He was cruising along, and he had a very significant lead. Otherwise, he probably could have gone even deeper in the game than he did. Just really impressive Looked a lot like the guy that we saw early in the year, someone that had legitimate top-of-the-rotation ability. And then for Gallon, seven innings also, nine strikeouts as well, easily his best outing since being elevated to the major league rotation. Didn't go to it that frequently, but when Gallon did throw his changeup, I thought the movement was especially nasty on it. He received more help from his defense, I thought, than Caleb did the previous night in order to preserve the great pitching line that he had and what was ultimately a scoreless game until the later innings. As for the Marlins Hitter of the Week award, I was once again unable to select just one guy. Both Miguel Rojas and Harold Ramirez really stuck out to me with their contributions to the team. Rojas, you may remember, was coming off a mild shoulder strain that forced him to miss a few games during the road trip. Overall, he went 7 for 16, a 438 batting average, and most shockingly, he hit leadoff home runs on both Saturday and Sunday's game. 
Puts a charge into this one to left field. And yeah. that's going to carry out of here. Back-to-back -back days with a leadoff home run for Miguel Rojas. Rojas continues to be such a critical piece of this Marlins team as their everyday shortstop and their leadoff hitter, someone that frankly has really surprised me based on expectations I had coming into the year. Uh, this power was certainly out of the norm. He only had one home run all season prior to this weekend, but nonetheless, just a really valuable player, and we saw the latest examples of it here. As for Harold, one of my personal favorites dating all the way back to the beginning of the year. 5 for 20, a 250 batting average, but two home runs, one of them on the road, the other one at Marlins Park on Sunday, and a walk-off sacrifice fly to open up throwback weekend, one of the great moments of this Marlins season so far. And 01 is out to center field. Dyson is back, and he'll make the catch. Won't even attempt to throw. I can explain how I feel right now. I feel so good. <laughs> and the cherry on top of it all were two leaping catches in left field near the wall in the later innings on Sunday to preserve the lead the Marlins had. Harold is never going to be known for his defense. When everyone's healthy, he's going to be limited to an outfield corner. His instincts may not be the best out there, but in those two moments, really great plays to preserve the lead that they had. It's great to see him as a significant part of the team while they wait for their higher profile outfield prospects. And even though as a whole, this month of July has not been a very productive month for him, maybe this is the beginning of him getting back on track to that form we saw earlier in the season. We all expect Harold to be safe on this Marlins roster as we come up on the trade deadline July 31st, this Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern time. But many of the Marlins players are not. They're on the trade block. This team is in sell mode still, looking to improve on their already strong top 10 farm system to really pry open that competitive window just a couple years down the road. So to discuss that, what lessons we've learned 100 plus games into the current season, and a lot of the very important developments happening off the field to better improve the financial backing that the Marlins have, we're going to bring on from the Sun Sentinel, Wells Dusenberry. He's a beat reporter covering the Marlins. He's been doing it for over a year now, and this was a really fascinating conversation. Everybody, enjoy. Welcome back to Fish Bites, everybody. It's Eli here. As promised, I am joined by a special guest this week, Miami Marlins beat reporter for the Sun Sentinel, Wells Dusenberry. You can read his Marlins coverage in the paper online at sun-sentinel.com. You can follow him on Twitter at DusReport, D-U-S-E, Report. And you can listen to him right now with me. Wells, thank you very much for coming on the pod. No problem. Thanks for having me on. So we're going to start just with the big picture major league team performance this year during the 2019 season. They've played a hundred plus games into the year. They are probably a tier above, you know, the very worst teams, the Orioles and the Tigers, but in that second to lowest tier in terms of just being really non-competitive and obvious seller heading into the trade deadline and the second straight year that they've been in this exact position. What I'm wondering is how has what's happened with the team this year compared to the expectations you had coming into the year. We knew they were going to be probably the last place team in the NL East, but just from covering every game and all these individual stories, um, 
how does it compare to what you thought coming into the year and what you think fans were preparing for from the 2019 season? I think it's a little similar to what I was thinking in the sense of coming into the year, we knew that, you know, the pitching was probably going to be pretty good this year and they're going to probably struggle to score runs. And I think that's kind of played out for the most part. It's kind of interesting looking at this team because you can always kind of mark it as two different points. You know, there was the 10 and 31 start, which has been obviously talked about as nauseum. And that was, you know, really, really bad. And then you look since then and it's been, you know, much improved. Obviously that's still, you know, around 500, slightly under 500, but clearly there's been, you know, market improvement in terms of that there. I would say the starting pitching has been a little better than I thought it would be, even though I thought that they would have, you know, a pretty good rotation. Obviously injuries have, you know, hindered a little bit. Um, Caleb Smith, you know, his performance this year, I think there were some question marks, you know, after, you know, how he'd fare coming off surgery from last year. He's been really, really impressive when healthy. I think you look at the guys, Sandy obviously has shown a lot of glimpses on there, maybe all-star team. And, you know, obviously some guys have had a little bit more mix. Trevor Richards, probably a little more solid early. He's had his struggles now. But I think looking at the depth from the pitching perspective and seeing what Gallon, Yamamoto, um, Elias Hernandez have been able to do has really been a big, you know, bright spot for this team and kind of the jumps those guys made, because I don't think prior to the season, anyone was really penciling them in, you know, quite to be in the rotation yet this year, or maybe having the impact they did. That's been a plus. Um, and then hitting wise, you know, it's been a little bit of a mixed bag on there. You've seen some good things coming up here. You've seen some mixed signs. Um, obviously, you know, Garrett Cooper's shown, you know, some bright spots jumping in this, Harold Ramirez, you know, Brian Anderson, power numbers have been up, um, obviously, you know, it's average and some of those numbers have been down a little bit, but I think you've seen some encouraging signs, mostly on the pitching side. I think that's kind of a long-winded answer to your question there and what the kind of expectations were heading into this year, but I, I would say probably a lot on track with what people were expecting. Yeah, I, I generally agree with you in that aspect, and, uh, We've been pretty across the stripes. We've been quick to emphasize, you know, just how impressive it is that almost every single starting pitcher that they bring up is immediately like a really solid contributor. The fact that there have been so few growing pains with the ones that have filled in because of the injuries with Eliezer Hernandez and Gallen and Yamamoto, how like with overall, if you look at the body of work for those guys, how their performance stacks up almost identically to the ones that were actually slated to be in the rotation to start the year. But, but yeah, I mean, the big, uh, the big like down spot of all this is the fact that if you look at their lineup uh, with, with the, well, they, with the exception of Garrett Cooper, you look across all their lineup, everybody that's had like significant playing time this year, there's really nobody that's better than an average hitter in the major leagues. We, we see a lot more potential with like Brian Anderson and there's someone of course, and Lewis Brinson that we thought had that kind of upside if everything clicked, but instead he's been moved backwards and uh, I think that's what I want to pick out is uh, is Lewis Brinson because we're speaking here in late July and he's been absent from the roster for now half of the entire season. Uh, was I, I think the demotion that he had uh, in early May was pretty justified and there was a body of work that said there was clearly something wrong with him and that perhaps in a different environment he could work that out. Uh, but honestly, it's a little bit... I'm a little unclear about what we think the plan is for him to get reacclimated on the major league roster. Um, yeah. Are, are you surprised in any way by how long he's been down with AAA New Orleans? And do you have any expectations about when he would be brought up and given the opportunity that he had entering the year? 
Yeah, I was, I've been a little surprised in how long this has been. I mean, this is going on, you know, it's close to about like two months I'm here. It's been there. It's been a long time in here. Obviously the struggles, you know, were, you know, well chronicled on there. And I think that, you know, I thought you probably, you know, would maybe show you know, some improvements this year. Obviously that had not, you know, that didn't bear out early on. I mean, when you have a player with his tools that he has, I mean, you obviously want to show so much patience because you just don't have that many type of guys in the organization. Um, you know, right now the Marlins are saying that they want to work on a swing, some mechanics and try and fix all of that. And we know that's obviously a great plan in terms of that, whether that's going to translate, you know, it's very much remains to be seen. I mean, it's not unheard of for guys to, you know, figure it out a little bit later on after having struggles early. I mean, I would expect that he's going to be back up here at the end of the year. I can't, you know, give a hard date on when that would be, but I would expect, you know, they're going to try to get him some at bats. And I would think they've had a long period of time to work with him in the minor leagues now, but he's one of those, you know, definitely a conundrum. He's a more high profile guy, obviously, because he's always going to be paired with Christian Yelich. And he was, you know, really the first one to be up here on the big stage and that, you know, who knows how that impacted from, you know, mental grind in the sense where, he probably unfairly got, you know, compared in that where obviously Christian Yelich is an MVP and Christian last year and Lewis Brinson was really, really having a tough time. And, you know, with the younger guys like Monte and Isan, they're still working out in the minor leagues. That's by no means an excuse. I mean, he just did not perform flat and simple the first two years. But um, I would think that he would be up here again by the end of this season and getting some at-bats because I think you want to come out of this season at least kind of having a better idea is Lewis Brinson a guy who can be a piece of this team moving forward here and maybe they won't be able to get a complete answer on that by the end of the year but I think you need to have a better inclination so from a contract perspective he has four years of control you don't have to kind of worry about it at that point but in kind of roster construction and seeing what you're going to do I would think you want to have a better just kind of glance and idea of what that's going to be by the end of the year and I would think he needs to get major league at bats to see what it's going to be. He's performed at AAA before, um, and then he didn't have the success in major league level. So ultimately, it's going to determine how he fares at the major league level. And simply put, he needs to get at bats to do that. So I think we'll see that by the end of the year. Right. Yeah. One reason why I just can't get him out of my mind is because I like you. I, I watch this team probably more than anybody should at the major league level. <laughs> and what, the thing that probably jumps out the most is that. Uh, just the rotating uh, cast of center field fill-ins that they've had while he's been gone. Because at first it was a lot of Isaac Galloway and then it was JT Riddle. And I guess more recently we're at the point where Cesar Playo, who had probably the best ending of his life, you know, on Wednesday <laughs> when, when he hit the game winning home run and then he made a couple of game saving catches. But it's so obvious that like on their active roster as it is, they just don't have, a real center fielder uh, defensively. And of course, all the guys that they put into that position can't really hit much either. So even though people go into watching this team know that that winning at the major league level isn't a super high priority right now, and you don't necessarily need to maximize those at-bats, it's just the contrast and the fact that uh, there's absolutely, no, at, at certain positions, you could point to prospects being blocked by veteran players but that's the one position in center field where that hasn't really set up, but uh, that's going to transition us to, I guess the trade deadline coming up on next Wednesday, the 31st, where 
the one case that everybody is following closely with the Marlins is begging and begging that Isan Diaz comes up pretty promptly after the deadline because he's been dominating AAA all season, so consistent and probably surpassing expectations that they thought people had for him. Um, in your Marlins inbox on the Sentinel this week, uh, looking ahead at the deadline, this is supposed to be like the most exciting time of the year probably for people that cover uh, a baseball team with all the rumors and possible transactions. But the Marlins are that like one team where it's pretty much just dust blowing across the rumor mill right now. <laughs> where not, a, not a whole lot of guys that are all that intriguing to contending teams. Uh, the, one, the ones that have been standout performers are the ones that are, they want to look at controlling long-term. But uh, you just pointed to really the obvious ones, the fact that you have th- guys in the last guaranteed years of their deals in Sergio Romo, Starlin Castro, Curtis Granderson, Neil Walker. Um, is, is that basically what it's going to be? Just all these guys that are at the end of their deals and fi- just finding any suitor possible for them just to would- open up space for younger guys? I would think so. I mean, at this point, you look at, you know, whether it's a Romo and you Walker, and obviously on these one-year deals, you might as well, you know, try and maximize what you can at the trade deadline if they're not going to be back next season. And I think, you know, when we went back in spring training, we saw a lot of these deals, and you saw, you know, those guys, and it's like, oh, okay, these are cheap one-year deals. It's the kind of thing where, you know, if it doesn't work out, they don't perform. It's a pretty low investment, and you're done after one year. If they perform well, you know, that's obviously good on the field, and you can potentially flip that. I mean, I think Granderson is probably more case in the first where, you know, he hasn't obviously performed like they probably thought. But again, these are low investments in terms of that. I would think that Sergio Romo seems like a guy who would be a natural. I mean, just in a sense where all these teams and contenders are looking for more bullpen relief help. And he's a pretty inexpensive contract expiring. He has you know, these high leverage situations. He's not your prototypical guy they're looking for who those flame throwing, you know, right handers that can come out of the bullpen, but he's kind of a unique play. I mean, unique pitcher who could probably face right handers who would probably make sense for someone. Um, Neil Walker probably, you know, he has, he's been dipped a little bit in production since he's coming back from the injury. He was really performing pretty strongly before. Um, he's another one of people want him I would think that he gives another option being that kind of switch hitter can play first second third that's pretty good versatility on there um you know the one which obviously we're all tracking is Starlin Castro of course in terms of I think the Marlins you know would you know definitely if they could find a suitor on here but you know while Starlin Castro has had a really good career body of work I mean blatantly put the results just haven't been here this season um you know among all qualified MLB second baseman, he's got the worst war of all of them at minus 0.7. And you would have to think a team is thinking, okay, when you're obviously acquiring a prospect, you're thinking, is this going to help our team? Um, is he an upgrade for someone at second base right now? Is he an upgrade as that bench type of guy? Um, and, you know, we'll have to see what happens in terms of that. But those would probably be the names on there. Um, I know that there's the Marlins have listened, you know, for guys, whether it's, you know, starters, whether it's a Caleb or a Trevor in terms of that. But I think those would really have to be blow away type offers. And I would, I would be very hesitant about that. I don't think, you know, with Caleb, I think they've got a guy who's been really established himself as kind of a really, really strong kind of guy that they can move, that he can have on the team going forward. He's been top 10 in NL among starters in a lot of categories right here. And something I wrote about to mention 
in there is that these contenders want someone who can obviously pitch into October. And Caleb's coming off shoulder injury. Injury. They're going to watch his innings. So if he's not able to pitch into the into October and do that significantly, then that's going to limit his immediate return, at least for this year. If you were to deal him, so that would probably hinder a return on you know top prospect at bat. So I would think it'd probably make more sense unless there was an offer that just blew them away to keep him on there and probably just focus on the expiring contracts. And another big factor that's going to dictate, you know, who they could be in the market for is how much money the team is making. People are more aware now than ever before about the connection between the revenue a team makes and then what they're going to actually put into the on-field product. And I mean, you just had an interesting look at the state of their television viewership. The fact that local ratings conventionally, the way that they're measured on TV are down, but that streaming is up. And could you just explain to people, uh, yeah, what that update is on how many people are actually watching games this year and the status of that next contract with Fox Sports Florida? Yeah, so if you look at the ratings from last year, they are down 13% on for cable for the Marlins games on Fox Sports Florida. Compared league-wide, um, MLB ratings are down 4% league-wide, so it's a little bit more, but it's not also the worst one on there. There were 13 teams that saw growth, 15 declines, and amongst the teams that saw declines, there were nine that had bigger drops than the Marlins did this year. Um, I think there were some, you know, obviously factors in terms that I think that more people are migrating towards, you know, streaming options. They're ditching cable on here, and sure, there are other sides where, um, you've seen some jumps like the San Diego Padres and Minnesota Twins saw the two biggest ones. You know, those teams also won. You had the Padres sign Manny Machado. You had the Twins who are leading the AL Central. Those play a well play a factor in as well, as well as just winning. You know, that in reality is going to attract fans, especially for these TV types of numbers on here. Um, in terms of what the numbers are, if you look last year, it was about a 1.08 rating, which is roughly translates about to 18,000 viewers per game. So I haven't looked at the exact one on here, but so if you figure that's probably, um, ugh, my math's not great on here. It's a little bit around like um, just 13% less on there. I'm not even going to get the number, but, um, you know, look on there. It's a little bit lower, but that's probably expected in a sense with a team that's rebuilding and struggling the way they are. Um, but you look on there, they're hot. They're happy. You know, the team is about the streaming. Um, those, it should be noted that streaming is not equivalent right now to cable viewership on here. There's still a lot of growth to go, but that it is moving in a good direction for the Marlins. Um, in terms of TV deal, that is still being negotiated right now. They've got two, they've got the deal comes up in 2020. So they still got about a year and a half left on that one. That's paying them 15 to 20 million, which, you know, it's been discussed as one of the worst in the league. And that's something that really hinders, especially small market teams in terms of having that money to spend on um, free agents and spend on payroll um, in terms of the negotiations on that right now, um, they started negotiating when they were, wait, right when the new ownership took over on here and they're in the midst of it. So what that figure is going to look like, um, it's hard to say at this point. Um, the Tampa Bay Rays at one point got a reported $82 million on their deal. Then um, the Tampa Bay Rays owner told, I believe it was the Tampa Tribune, that that number was going to be a little bit lower, but he did not give an exact figure. Regardless, the Marlins are going to get a pretty sizable jump, I would imagine, in terms of this new TV deal. So that's going to play a big factor. And then I know one of the things I've seen a lot is just, you know, 
kind of people wondering why the TV hasn't deal hasn't been done yet. And because just because the deal hasn't been done yet, that's not a bad sign. And that's mainly just a, these things take a long, long time. I think that when you have to factor in with this is that people, the way people are watching TV is just so changing, radically changing. I mean, if you think of how you watch TV, like two years ago, five years ago, it's pretty significant. And then you have to then project, I mean, who knows what someone's going to look like in 10 years. And these contracts usually last about, you know, 10 to 15 years. So there are so many different things in play. I mean, is there even going to be cable in 10 years? Is everything streaming? Is there going to be some new type of device that someone has not even created yet that we're going to watch on here? And then kind of factoring in how you price those out is makes this, you know, a very complicated endeavor. So that's probably why these are, this is taking so long. Plus that they have another year on this deal. So there's really no rush for them to get this um, finalized right now, but that will play a very big role, obviously in this team's sustainability going forward. And they need to secure a good deal for it um, because these deals are locked in for 10 years. So, and you saw what happened with the Marlins in their previous deal, you know, maybe a 10, $15 million deal looked really good a while ago, but then that, burns you in the latter half of a decade. So the Marlins, they will definitely have to get a good one on this to be sustainable going forward. They're well aware of this, and they're kind of how they're targeting this going forward. Wells Dusenberry of the Sun Sentinel here with us. Uh, it does also pretty significant, the revenue that they get from people actually attending games and coming to the ballpark and doing everything involved with that. Um, so that's another thing uh, I wanted to bring up with you, even though we're really deep into the season. If uh, you look last year to the previous last year to this year, attendance is relatively flat, even though the team was very vocal about all the changes it made, the ballpark enhancements to the color scheme, of course, but also through to uh, so many of the different functions and attractions and the pricing of going to the ballpark for a Marlins game. You were someone that you started on the Marlins beat last year, and you've obviously been around throughout this year. So even though we're pretty deep into the year, I'm sure you've noticed there's just not a whole lot of people going to the games. And that means some of the people listening to this haven't actually seen the ballpark enhancements that went into effect for the 2019 season. So as someone that saw both the before and the after versions of the park, could you just explain some of the differences in Marlins Park? Um, Not necessarily like listing all the different features, but uh, yeah, just what the difference is in the Marlins Park experience that you've noticed from 2018 to 2019, the differences, and uh, whether you think that those have been effective or not. Yeah, I mean, I think that they've gone in towards of a more kind of modern direction in the way that stadiums are going in terms of, you know, talk about the Auto Nation Alley and center field getting rid of the home run sculpture, a lot of standing room only sections. This is, you know, using the buzzword they always use targeting the millennial audience but this is how a lot of these ballparks are going i think the more and more like if you're watching a marlins game on tv you'll usually see a lot of places where you'll see standing room only decks or kind of seating and i think that they're kind of going to modernize and make this experience you know a little bit better and the food options and drink were significantly improved in the off season as well and i think it's about making that atmosphere better for um, going to these Marlins games. Obviously, yes, you know, everyone says, oh, that's great, but you have to win. But these are also two separate things on here. And that one, they obviously are working towards getting better, but you also want to make a good environment and a good place where people can enjoy the game as well. And those kind of will be separately. And that 
that they're targeting that point now to try and make it a little bit better. I think that ultimately that's not going to drive people to the game. I think that that's the kind of thing that will help and is definitely necessary on there. Ultimately, I think what's going to drive attendance is, you know, winning, but not only just winning, but showing, I think trust is the big factor you have to see. I think Marlins are very kind of unique from a lot of other places where it's been well documented how burned South Florida has been by this franchise, not its ownership group over the past 25 plus years. And where there's a lot of people are just like, you know what? I don't know if I necessarily trust. I want to invest in this. I need to see, you know, them be successful or for X amount of years, or I need to see that they are putting in the effort and work. And that doesn't happen quickly. So I think that that's going to be a big thing they're working towards overcoming. I think that getting, The stadium improvements was definitely a start and a good help, but I don't think it's going to be, and I think they're well aware of this too. It's not like we do this and all of a sudden people are going to show up because the numbers have been pretty similar, if maybe even slightly lower than last year for attendance. And if you see any of these games, there's a lot where it's pretty rough, you know, in terms of no one being there. So I think it's kind of a slow kind of growth and you know the quote-unquote earning the trust back but I think the improvements have been good for the ballpark but it should also be noted that's not going to be enough to get people back oh for sure um something that aside from being a pretty critical time of year for the team it is somewhat of a special time of year for you it this is right around your first anniversary of being the Marlins beat reporter for the Sun Sentinel congratulations on that Thank you. So now that you've been around the team for all that time, what I'm curious about is how the job is different than you may have imagined going into it. Uh, because I think a lot of fans, for one, and even, frankly, some of the writers that are with me on Fish Stripes, some of their goals in their careers are kind of to be where you are, to be someone that's around the team all the time, uh, the players and in the clubhouse and at the ballpark constantly. And, uh, yeah, but what I'm wondering is just uh, it's a very unique experience covering a major league team just because of the really unforgiving schedule and how and how even ahead of the regular season, uh, how spring training is such an important time of year and how long that drags on. So it's it's a really unique grind that you're on. And yeah, even as someone that may have done reporting prior to that with other sports, it is somewhat of a unique situation. So how has being around the team uh being an MLB beat writer been different than you imagined. And I guess specifically about the Marlins, uh, just thoughts you had about what the Marlins organization was like coming into the job and what you've learned about certain players or about leadership in the Marlins organization while you've been here. Yeah, it's definitely been um, an interesting kind of year thinking back in terms of on this. Um, I had only done major league games. I think I had pinch hit, so to speak, three times. I'd filled in a couple games two years ago, but I'd never done anything significant in terms of that, whether that was on a professional beat. Um, I My background was that I started, um, I was on high school beat before for the Sun Sentinel for a few years and then moved into this role. I think that, you know, it's kind of an interesting in that it really is the kind of a daily grind, which you really, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, it's just that it is kind of, you know, it's a daily sport and it's that it really is kind of a year round thing, but like, it's the kind of thing when you go because of that, you get 
so immersed with kind of the or the team and just like everything that kind of surrounds that because you're really with that um, on a daily basis. And that's for nearly, I mean, an entire year, eight months or so from spring training. Um, you know, I've had, you know, depends. Like it, it seems kind of thing where you, you learn so much about these players because you're in the clubhouse, you know, every day there's that hour availability before um, you really have these relationships with the people there around the team, the organization, um, around the reporters, you know, whether it's, I mean, I sit next to Joe every night on there. So, you know, I'm talking with him probably more than like anyone else on here. And it's like, um, it's just like an interesting kind of grind in terms of that, but um, very fulfilling. And it's interesting as a kid, this was probably something I like definitely dreamed of doing on a major league level, like in the middle kind of portions of my career, I kind of like maybe necessarily didn't think I would be covering major league baseball, but it's been, it's been a pretty cool, unique, especially from being a kid when this is kind of something you dreamed of. I never really envisioned. I never had any backup plan other than being a sports reporter. Um, I never considered any other career paths. So it definitely has been pretty cool in that regard in terms of here. And, you know, as far as the team, it's definitely interesting jumping in at the beginning of a rebuild, which I think was probably, you know, one of the more interesting times to try and see this kind of built up from the beginning because for pretty much everyone this is kind of new from you know most of the people in the organization especially on the communication side this is they've been right there just from um, 2018 and seeing how this is growing and getting kind of an inside look at the growth and how this really goes in terms of a first-time experience it's almost like I'm kind of a rookie going along with them on that experience so yeah it's definitely kind of an interesting going on this kind of path with them at the same time, but it's definitely been, you know, extremely fulfilling and something, you know, I've definitely been blessed to have the opportunity to do, but um, yeah, it's, I would definitely say that's a very long answer of getting around it, but um, just saying probably in terms of, I would say just, you know, how much of it is you're in it like 24 seven is probably a little more than kind of, I thought going in, but that's just kind of the nature of the beast in major league baseball, but it's definitely something that I've been uh, really excited and really enjoyed. Sure. Um, uh, last thing before you go, although a significant part of your coverage is the games and themselves and news as well around the team. Um, you do also do really good work. Uh, that larger stories about players or about certain things going on with the team outside of just that everyday business. So if you were to, if we were to plug one of the links to one of your old articles that you've done over the past year about something related to the team that you think aged well, not necessarily related to the day-to-day what's going on with the team, but whether it was a feature on a certain player or a certain aspect of the organization, uh, which of those are you most proud of and do you think um, gets people really inside what's going on with the Marlins? I think the one that I did on the Marlins education program um, in the off season in terms of what they were really focusing on specifically and, you know, teaching um, English to their Spanish players, Spanish to their English players. um, They gave me a very good look in terms of what they're doing. And I think that that kind of shows that the Marlins do have a very good plan, especially in terms of player development, in terms of trying to, you know, obviously bring these players along. And I was kind of fascinated by, kind of everything they did. Um, Emily Glass, who runs the program, does a terrific job there. And they've, you know, really started to pour the resources into that. And I think that that's been, 
you know, a very kind of positive thing they've done so far. And that that's going to be something that really kind of, I think, shows where this is kind of going in player development. You know, this is something an education program the Marlins did not have under the prior regime. And I think getting kind of getting the opportunity to tell that story in terms of, you know, sitting in in classes and talking with Emily and talking with players on there was a really fascinating look in terms of how that is all kind of progressing and going. I think um, another one where kind of I did on the state, just of the financial situation for the whole Marlins um, that was a couple months ago, two or three months ago, um, it was interesting talking to people from a lot of different departments and avenues in terms of really getting a glimpse of every how everything works together, whether it's from a revenue perspective and whether it's, you know, how much TV, ticket sales, um, corporate partnerships, how all these things that maybe people don't think of immediately play very, very large roles. And like, for example, the corporate partnerships, um, things are working on, whether that's with AutoNation Alley, something that they're going to be working on with stadium naming rights. Um, there's just a lot of really things that kind of go into this, you know, giant machine that's running a major league baseball team and they all play really important roles. And if they get neglected and if they're not helpful, that's going to really hurt you. If you're a small market team, I think that the Marlins have shown a lot of promise, especially on the business side. I think they have a lot of smart people in this organization running some of those things. So it'll be, that one was definitely interesting having a chance to talk to a lot of people from inside those departments in terms of how that operates. Um, so those are two off the top of my head that I think kind of give an interesting glimpse of where, of how they're building this thing up and where it could be going potentially. Right. E even following the team from afar, I think it's fairly obvious, even though you can't guarantee success at the other end of this rebuild, that the organization, that the way that front office and higher ups are, how they do, <laughs> how things are organized outside of um, the highest level of ownership and the contrast between what's happening under Bruce Sherman and Derek Jeter and how uh, things may have been organized under Jeffrey Loria and how uh, some of the differences that they're looking at in terms of developing players and developing people and, of course, making nice with the surrounding community, that the contrast between that and what used to be Marlins baseball is so extreme. And, yeah, I mean, there there are always going to be, like, a pretty significant chunk of this community that does not come back until – it, in very clear terms, their success at the major league level, but it has, yeah, it's been really fascinating through both your coverage and then just from following the team as, as closely as we do at Fish Stripes, being able to see all the differences and how it's a franchise that sort of resembles other successful franchises for the first time, instead of one that's, you know, making headlines for all the wrong reasons. It's, mm -hmm. it, it yeah, I'm. I guess you could, you should consider yourself a little bit grateful that you're covering the t the team in this era instead of maybe back a few years ago when uh, decision making was a little bit different and uh, yeah, it didn't get the team exactly where it wanted to be. So it's yeah, it's it's been an interesting ride. And uh, but you think we're still a couple years away from seeing success at the major league level? You think, right? Yeah, I would say probably, in my guess, I think 2020 is probably a year where we'll see some growth. Um, 
I think, and maybe that growth means, can they maybe, you know, get get close to maybe a 500 team? Can they maybe be around that, you know, whether it's like a 75 one team or something? I think if you see growth, um, kind of to go back to a point we were talking about earlier with this team is that I think entering the year, we said we want to see growth from the pitching and from three position players in particular were Brian Anderson, um, Jorge Alfaro, and Lois Brinson were the three key ones. Obviously, the Brinson one has not worked out so far. I think that Alfaro has been, you know, performed pretty much, I think, the way people expected, a lot of positives with him. Um, Brian Anderson, I think that he's beginning to, you know, get a pick up a little bit. The power numbers are going to be increased, you know, a lot from last year. So you definitely see enough there. I think next year it's can, what do we see from, a guy like Garrett Cooper, is he going to be someone, can he continue this? Maybe the power numbers can he uptick. Is Harold Ramirez a guy who is a long-term piece on here? Is Isan Diaz and Monte Harrison, how those guys do in their rookie seasons, I think will really kind of determine where this team goes. And I would specifically say those two guys. If Monte Harrison and Isan Diaz really can come out and be guys right out of the gate, then maybe that timeline of 2021 for a playoff team Maybe that's a little bit, you know, more realistic if the pitching continues to be at a very high level. And if you see Sixto, you know, be there at the end of the year and Edward Cabrera inches way closer, then, you know, that's possible for 2021 to be a playoff team. But I think that they're going to have to have a lot of growth, especially with some of the position players. I would say Isan and Monte are the real key ones. And if they get Sprinson to be, you know, to take and tap into that, then that would be even better. But I think that's going to be the really big factor will be those guys and can the pitching keep playing at a level. But so I would think probably 2021 could be, you know, a year where they, maybe they can contend. I think that's going to depend on probably those guys. Right. And it depends a little bit on their competition as well. Uh, as we're recording this baseball America just released their updated farm system rankings and the Marlins now, officially a top 10 farm system, which is, I guess, a milestone that a lot of us at Fish Stripes have had circled for a while. Um, even though Baseball America is not the only outlet covering this kind of thing, they have a great track record at identifying this. Meanwhile, you have three teams in the same division in the Mets and the Phillies and the Nats that are all in the bottom six spots, seven spots in the farm system ranking. So those are teams that don't have those same reinforcements coming up. They don't have that same like cost control of their players. And, but you still have the Braves that are gonna that are really built up to be juggernauts really for the foreseeable future. So it's gonna be interesting to see it unfold. Uh, the team's gonna look a lot different down the stretch this year than it did to start the year. And uh, as you referred to, you have all these great prospects that are gonna come up presumably in the next calendar year. So we're gonna get to a point where this roster could be pretty much as homegrown as they want it to be with all the talent they have in here. And hopefully moving forward, we have you back on the podcast because this was really great, Wells. Uh, we're going to check out your work at the Sun Sentinel. We're going to follow you along on Twitter at Dues Report. And everybody here, if you're listening to this, make sure to subscribe to Fish Stripes Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to us on Slam Radio as well, Sirius XM, uh, on Mondays for these episodes. So once again, thank you so much, Wells. Congrats on the anniversary. And uh, we'll talk to you again real soon. Thanks for having me on.